Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is a repeat customer, Sam from Sheffield. And uh, Sam, would you like to recap a little bit about yourself? And uh, then we can get on to what's happening in the world of, um, well, what you're interested in. Yeah, so basically, I am interested in slow fashion, which I know is a term you particularly dislike or have an issue with, and we can come to that later. But for me, essentially, it's the all-encompassing world of the nonsense that is clothes. Um, and, you know, the kind of the, the shit that comes with it, if you uh, can forgive me for, I don't know, is this a sweary podcast? It's anything goes podcast. <laughs> I'll try my best. Um, you know, like there's, I think there's a good way to do clothes. I think there's a horrible way to do clothes. And I don't think the two are always mutually exclusive. It's a very, very complex and complicated issue. And you post one thing on Instagram about the right way to do something and somebody crops up and says, well, what about this? And uh, yeah, basically, I'm not explaining it very well, am I? Uh, it's very complicated. I like slow fashion. I like fashion that doesn't hurt people or the planet. Um, and that's about it. We're sort of getting into things really at the cutting edge of stuff here now, because, I mean, I have a sort of, I don't like the word fashion. Yeah. And I think that sort of really works against the whole idea of slow fashion. I completely agree, but I think that it is just that idea of you can't fight against something unless it's clearly defined. And I'm pretty sure everyone is now becoming aware of what fast fashion is and how long it's been around for and what it's doing and what it's done. But also the fact that we've now got ultra fast fashion and all these new labels coming out for the way that brands are doing it. And I think slow fashion just wants to be the antithesis of that. I don't think you can fight you can't fight fast fashion with something that isn't called slow fashion. If you, if you wander around talking about slow style and sustainable style, then it's kind of, it's relevant, but I don't think it hits as hard as slow fashion. It's not seen as an alternative. I think the problem may be that it's becoming too uh, insular. It's becoming sort of a, a thing that only a very, very few people will understand it's like if I sort of bring up the topic of romance clothing, which I think is just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy. I really enjoyed that, but yeah. <laughs> but then it's only me, really, and a few more <laughs> who will know what the hell I'm talking about. I had no idea what you were talking about, but I still enjoyed it. Well, there you go. <laughs> go on, next. romance clothing. Give us a brief... Uh... Uh, it's just this cardigan I picked up at a jumble sale, and it's from a Norwegian brand I'd never heard about. But the sort of little tagline in it is romance clothing. And that just made my day. I just, I was in such a good mood all day. I was just thinking, what sort of clothing do I want? I want romance clothing. That is the best stuff. That will really set me up. <laughs> but sort of in the world of fast fashion, most people want sort of crummy, modern use clothing. Yeah, uh, that that's the worst part of it. That's the sort of one extreme of it is items being worn once and trashed or even not worn at all. I think like the statistics, and I'm not going to pull numbers out of thin air, but they're out there. But the statistics of like the number of clothes in wardrobes that have been unworn for over a year, it's just crazy. And I think, you know, like people can come along and say, well, it's only clothes. 
But then you get into this whole supply chain and the, the way it's done and the sort of the reliance on the global south and poverty wages and it all just whirlwinds. And then you realize clothes are never just clothes. Um, there's obviously the myth of machine made clothes, which just doesn't exist. Um, I'm sure I've done it before. I talk about, oh, I like handmade clothes and I'm sure you have, but every single piece of clothing is made by hand. More or less. Yeah. Of course, I mean, even Harris Tweed is said to be hand-woven, but strictly speaking, you're pumping with your legs. <laughs> Fair enough. So, leg, uh, leg woven. But fast fashion is a well-established term, and slow fashion, well, we disagree slightly on the term, but uh, we agree on what's right and wrong there. Mm -hmm. But you're talking now about ultra-fast fashion. So um, brands like Shein, uh, which you might have seen spelt shine, uh, but it is apparently pronounced Shein, or so I learned for a recent video. Uh, and it is, it's to a point now of thousands of new products hitting their website every single day. Not, not every week, not every month, just every single day they upload a th like thousands of new styles to their website and they're reacting almost overnight to tiktok and instagram trends things that have gone viral um and i mean if you read into the business model there's certain elements of it which you're like hey they're setting something up there which could work really well because it's all it all prioritizes all made in china um in a huge huge complex and they've put a lot of investment into manufacturing in china but they are focusing on localization and having as short a supply chain as possible so that they don't need to rely on external factors to get things to market. And, you know, like short supply chains and knowing where things come from is something that we celebrate and want to push, but they're just doing it for the wrong reasons. And they're here, but they're basically doing it to make sure that their supply chain is as fast as possible so that they can pump out as much as possible. And they're already pumping out the next thing before it's even on people's backs. It's kind of hard to fathom how they even how it's even possible. I mean, one thing is following TikTok and so forth and picking up on stuff. Say, if I see Brad Pitt wearing some T-shirt today and I want it tomorrow and they can sort of sort that. But, I mean, where are all these thousands of styles coming from every day? I mean, um, how, how is it even? <laughs> it's just <laughs> mind-blowing. Uh, the sad part is a lot of them are stolen designs. Um they have a team of about 300 designers, I think. Um, and a lot of they're well known for sort of stealing independent and small and specifically black designers work. Um, there's, you know, if you search shine steals, Shein steals, sorry, it's rife. Like they just take a design, replicate it, pump it out as their own. No credit to the original designer, no work for them to do. It's already there. Yeah, I, I still can't see how it becomes a thousands a day, but it's <laughs> completely baffling. I mean, I'm I'm from an era where uh, this season it's flares, and that would be good for the next half year, a year if you're a bit sort of non-specific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did I see on Instagram today? Uh, my sister shared something. Oh, that was it. It was uh, the early 2000s micro skirt is back. Can't even remember it the first time around, but there you, you go. Know, Chris, Christina Aguilera in the the belt oh, skirt. Well, that essentially, brings more bills. Apparently, that's back. Um, 
it doesn't strike me as clothing that's got longevity. So what is the alternative to this? Uh, I don't know. I think it's there's, there's so many different ways that you can come at it. And I think this is where it can get quite complex and deep is that like there's no one way to engage with slow fashion. There are several ways to engage on very different budgets. Uh, but the simplest thing, if people are listening to this that are thinking, oh, you know what, actually, I don't want to support that. I'd like to slow down is to just stop shopping. Just stop um, and go through your wardrobe and your dozens and hundreds of unworn items and wear them and you know repair them just because they were cheap and throwaway that's or made to be cheap and throwaway doesn't mean that that's how you have to view them um i still have a bit of fast fashion kicking around in my wardrobe um but you know it's like there's second hand which we've discussed the issues with before um you know every, every approach has its pros and its cons the big one like a big one for me is that i do absolutely love small independent makers um and whilst I say stop shopping, stop consuming, if you are looking to buy something, then absolutely spend your money with these people who are making things in the in a good and intentional way. It was very refreshing to hear you say, use the stuff you already have, because that is part of the message that often gets skipped. It sort of goes from throw away all your fast fashion stuff, then buy lots of better, independent, more conscious what's a blah 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 which there's like um you know it's i think it's ajibar but it says you can't consume your way out of the problem um like buying more things is not the answer it's, it's kind of obvious when you hear it said but it's not obvious when people are making memes and instagram posts and all that no and this is this is the problem with instagram is and as i mentioned earlier you can only deal with one problem at a time it's like you can only bring up the topic of natural fibers uh and their pros but you can't within a post about natural fibers you can't also solve every other problem that exists in fashion that is true because the problem itself is so huge and multifaceted that i think even if you're writing a book about it it's not easy to cover it all no yeah we do have a lot of um sustainability sustainable fashion advocates on instagram do you follow many of them absolutely um i i, I kind of love love how varied all of the people i follow are you know there's accounts which specifically focus on directing you towards conscious options or better options uh, lee at the redirector is brilliant for that she has a whole as it suggests a whole directory of sort of sustainable brands um and then there's oh, there's loads of accounts which focus on thrifting or secondhand um oh, i can't even think of any that come to mind as that there's that many that are good about it uh specifically i love following people who mend clothes um i'm not very good at it but i find it so nice to look at um especially visible mends but also like partially visible and invisible mending it's just i think it's such an incredible skill um and it's a really really vital and valid part of the slow fashion movement um so for repairs there's 
Um, Emily Martin up in Glasgow, Edinburgh, up in Edinburgh. Um, there's Bucku, who I think's over the over the other side of the pond. Um, all just like amazing inspiration and pr- mends that I could probably never ever pull off if I practiced, but still inspires me to want to mend my own stuff. Are you going out of your way now to put extra wear on your stuff just so you can mend it? Not not quite there yet, but I do get extremely excited when I find a hole in something. <laughs> I, I, wash, I washed a wool cardigan for the first time in God knows how long the other day. And when it came out of the wash, I was like, I was like, oh, you know what? There's actually a couple of little holes in this which need my attention. Um, and then I start thinking about what stupid color thread I could get to make a nice contrast against the wool and how big to do the darn. And I don't know. I just think it's a really nice way to make clothes your own thing as well. Mm, you're definitely going in deep now. I mean, mending used to be just what we did to stuff. Now it's become a sort of trendy thing, which is pretty weird when you think about it. It's great. And, you know, I'd love to see more trends like that. Like, I, I wish trends were mending and re-wearing outfits and, like, you know, looking back through what you've got rather than new, new, new all the time. Uh, yeah, I am hoping to get some of the mending people on the podcast shortly. That'd be uh, great. I'd, be, for I'd a love good to chat. listen to that. Um, I'm not sure how uh, visible mending will transfer to the audio format, but we'll have a crack at it. <laughs> and certainly at least around the sort of philosophy of it, because as you say, visible mending. Now, is that a sort of virtuous way of showcasing that you have mended your stuff? Or, I mean, I think so. I, like, I think, you know, there's two two ways to look at everything. You could see a visible menders virtuous or show off. But for me, it's actually, it's a certain sense of pride in showing off that I'm happy to mend my clothes. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm here on Instagram and YouTube advocating for people to mend things and look after things. So wearing visible mends is just a, a part of my personality as well. Um, and also it's often because I can't be bothered to find a thread that matches. Well, that's a fair point and a good admission. It's much uh, easier to notice- just find something that contrasts nicely. <laughs> I do notice that the whole idea of mending is becoming a political topic, at least here in Norway, where there are movements wanting uh, the VAT removed from people who repair things so that it actually becomes cheaper to repair things and also demanding that the, well, especially consumer electronics, that things are made repairable. Oh, I, I mean, yeah, right to repair is a massive massive issue that it could be a whole there's there's probably a whole podcasts just about right to repair um i think the example i was talking with with a friend recently who's big into food systems and stuff was uh the agricultural machinery uh is it john deere that manufacture Mm -hmm. a load of agricultural machinery and there's there's protests against them with the right to repair because tractors are now so complicated that it requires a technician to come out and plug the computer in like modern cars. Um, and actually, you know, farmers can't just repair their machinery anymore. Um, but that is very much off topic, um, slightly relevant, but the VAT removed on. So, so was that, would that be like if you're selling an item 
with VAT and then it goes back for repair, you're refunded the VAT or is it just if you offer a repair service, you don't pay VAT on that item or? It would be the VAT on the repair service, yes. The VAT so on the I, service. If I set up a, a Nick's visible mending of your jeans service, I would not pay VAT on it. So it would be, say, 25% cheaper than it was today. That's, I mean, love it. That's great. And I think, you know, this really leads into the fact that whilst you and I can whinge and moan and scream on social media, that has to lead to change on a sort of policy-based and government level. Um, You know, like government need to intervene with the huge fast fashion corporations or change the way it works like VAT breaks on repairs rather than VAT breaks on other stuff um, to encourage that and encourage that way of working. Definitely. It has to hit where it, uh, where it's noticed in your wallet. Yeah. And well, that's the language that they speak in fast fashion at the corporate top at the top of the corporate ladder. So, now, we were talking about small independent makers. I, I know you're, you have a few uh, friends in the small independent making business. I do. How are they, how are they doing? Um, everyone seems to be doing really quite well. Um, I think it's – I mean, I, I run a small business myself. I don't make clothes, but I think the idea of a small business is that you're nimble and agile and can respond to things in a way that a corporate behemoth can't. And what I love um, seeing with, you know, my friends who admittedly most of them I've just met through buying their clothes or being interested in them um, is that they're working at a pace that suits them. And they're making a living. Yeah. (laughs) It seems to be going well. Um, I think the, the constant pursuit of growth and upscaling doesn't suit everybody. Um, certainly doesn't suit me. And I don't think it suits the mindset of somebody who wants to set up a small little clothing studio or fashion house or fashion studio or whatever, whatever term they want to use for that business. I think the act of making is just inherently better when it's small. Do you find it... Uh, increases your appreciation of things if you actually get to know the person who's making it for you massively um oh so much um i think it's like we we briefly briefly touched on it at the end of the last pod with um coffee and the relevance of that to where i am with clothing and it is that i love knowing where things come from um i have done for years i've just always wanted to know um and that led me Firstly, into obsessing over clothes made in England. Um, and then, you know, that was that was a few years of my personal style was I wear British made clothing. And then you start to realize that actually you don't need to limit yourself that much to make a, a positive impact. Um, but it did help me discover some amazing local makers. Uh, but it's just knowing, knowing where things come from. Like Localization doesn't have to just mean buying the closest thing. It can just mean supporting the businesses that also support localization somewhere else, if that makes any sense whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's all about the sort of transparency of it, isn't it? Um, I notice uh, the boot guys 
I've previously talked about the wax cotton perverts, but these are the boot guys uh, who buy really expensive boots and they want them to be made either by a certain company in Canada or by someone in Japan or someone in the UK. Not so often in the UK, which is a bit strange. But they are now going for sort of single man companies in uh, Asia who are sort of super craftsmen. Uh, it's a, quite a weird thing. Uh, I think what, what it comes down to in the end is that these guys are doing it for about half the price, but they're yeah. also, you communicate them with them on Instagram and you get the boots you want. So you're super involved in the process. Yeah. I mean, why and not? It works. If it works. It's not, not that often you get to be really involved in the process of anything much at all these days. No, I think that's the, that's the key is it, it's like, it's it's one of the huge benefits of buying local is that you you get to know the maker you get to know how you could expect it to work like whether or not you're going to get repairs because you get chance to speak to people um and you know social media has opened that up to to globalization um but as long as it's supporting small craft then like that's just a win for everyone really i think there's a What's the phrase? I really love this phrase. It's uh, cultural sustainability, like supporting small crafts and traditional crafts wherever they're based is so valuable for maintaining those um, that mindset of longevity and purpose with an item that just isn't present in huge factory produced conditions. That is a very important point because I recently became aware of, I mean, there's so many crafts now that are actually disappearing because, say, in the UK, there's not enough young people who see a future in it. No. Um, umbrella making in the UK is now a red-listed occupation. <laughs> Sounds strange when you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, we use a lot of umbrellas. Are they all coming from China or... There are about half a dozen traditional umbrella makers, I think, still left in the UK. Wow. And that, um, my friend Warren is a silver spinner or a, like a precious metal spinner. Um, and he posted on, he shared something the other day from um, a gallery that's showing some work that basically pointed out that there are about three people who can commercially spin precious metals in the country. Um, and he piped up saying, well, there's a few more than that, but most of them are over the age of retirement. Um, and it's like, it's just that it is so strange how low the numbers are in craft. It's like, you know, when you say a red, a red listed occupation, you think, oh, there's a handful of people. But then when you actually say six, there are six people left or businesses left making that. Yeah. It really hits home how much we depend on everything. Yeah. Well, I, I think I might have been exaggerating when I said there were half a dozen left making umbrellas because I know that some of them like to give the impression that they're making them in the UK, but mm. really they're just sort of putting the bag on it mm. in the UK. Well, well who's the um, – which, you know, that's a very common – very common thing for you know stick the label in and say it's made there um which is why we champion this greater transparency and genuine transparency but I was just reminded the um 
you're saying like last remaining crafts. There's the uh, tannery somewhere in, is it Devon? Are they down in Devon? Um, JF Baker, they are the last tannery in England that still use traditional oak bark tanning in the pits rather than a sort of like the slaster, slaster, faster drum process. Um, and, you know, but there's so many small leather makers that are like trying so hard to support them. And like, it must be a successful business because pretty much any leather maker I see currently who loves what they do is using that leather. I think the key word there is probably that they're small makers. So this one tannery is able to supply these small makers, but that's about it. Yeah. And but I if think, that's enough for them to keep in business, then they should all be pretty happy. Well, that's it. It's like, if that's enough, like that, they don't strike me as the type of people that say, Oh, wow. Demand's rocketing. Let's, uh, let's start buying in some cheaper hides and then increase output. It, it, it's not, I don't think it's about that for them or anyone involved in that sort of craft really. I wonder what the environmental aspects of uh, what they're doing is. Oak tanning, is that uh, the good sort or is it uh, the not so good sort? Well, it's definitely not chrome tanned, which is the bad sort. Um, Mm. You know, like you're talking natural oak bark um, and the tannins that come with that. I'm sure there's a few other chemicals and additives that get the process going. Um, but you know, you know, these are questions that you have to ask. Uh, but I also don't, you know, I'm not sure that the last remaining tannery in the country or sorry, last remaining oak bark tannery running on a very small craft basis, then they shouldn't necessarily be held to the same standards or level of accountability as a huge multinational corporation. That is a fair point. Um, I'm much more suspicious of companies that use um, leather from India. When you see the tanneries at the top of the Ganges River, basically polluting the life stream for the entire country. Mm. But they do make uh, cheap leather, cheap footwear, which, um, yeah, there you go. Well, that's it. It's the trade. That's always the trade-off, isn't it? Cheap means expensive for something else. Yeah, and if you buy cheap shoes, you're buying more shoes more often or not really. That's that's wrong because people who buy good shoes tend to buy lots of good shoes. <laughs> that's true. So, uh, and that leads us sort of nicely into that buy, buy less, buy better, spend more, that whole marketing thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you hit it there with the spend more. I think like... I'll say it, I'll tell people to buy better, buy less, but you're right, it is just code for spend more. But spending more does typically, not always, um, and there's some obviously very notable exceptions, but spending more does usually net you a better product for you, for the planet, for the people who made it. Um, As long as you're doing your due diligence and your research and putting your money where it's supposed to be. Now, a bit of a hop, skip and a jump, but we were in footwear. You've been doing some videos with um, one of your local shoe makers. Recently. Yes, I have. They're very fun. Having having a bit of fun by the look of it. 
a lot joshing about yeah um <laughs> you know i think last time we spoke i was probably very serious very ah everything's shit everything's dying um yeah and it, it's i i am trying to like have a lot a little bit more fun and actually over on instagram you'll see my content has ver- veered more towards the the fun um because you know that's how you get people involved um but yeah the goral thing the shoes that they're, they're a such a wonderful bunch of people um they're a, like a polish family they've been going 80 odd years moved the factory to sheffield in the 80s i think so they've been making shoes here in sheffield for a long time and they're just absolutely brilliant they have like all the right intentions as um like it's it's quite a big operation it's not like one man in his shop um they've got a fair few staff they've got some fancy machines they invest in machines to make sure that they make great shoes uh like the whole blake stitch thing i'm sure you'll have come across um for listeners who don't know what a blake stitch is it's typically found more in dress shoes or uh but it's kind of that stitched sole where you can remove the sole without completely destroying the shape of the shoe um similar to goodyear welting isn't it i believe so um but it, it like it's that that Blake stitch is what makes a dress shoe kind of much more resolable than your traditional or contemporary trainer, um, and they've very simply just taken that approach and put it into trainers and made them resolable, which is shockingly rare to find. Like you know, I'm sure when you buy a pair of shoes, you expect to be able to resole them because you know that the sole will wear out it's kind of a bonus but it's not something i think most people think about but right i I mean can be resold for me it's a it's it's almost a bare minimum that a shoe would be resoldable um and then obviously in trainers that is just not the way it's done once the sole's gone Mm. the shoe's gone yeah um but yeah we've been doing some silly videos uh it started out as a way to use up waste materials and see if we could make sort of shoes out of waste materials. Um, And then there's just a few fun little videos in there to see what else we can make shoes out of. Most recently, a uh, sort of foot and a half tall talking pepper pig toy, which still haunts me. The shoes, (laughs) those shoes still haunt me to this day. Um. (laughs) Yeah, so um, this haunting pepper pig shoe. (laughs) Yes. Did it become a shoe? It shooed. Um, the sh- sorry, the show is called Will It Shoe? Uh, not, not the most creative name, but it, it, it it's fun. You know, it, there's, there's the obvious ideas of where that's come from. But Will It Shoe? We take a material, we um, put it on the lovely team in the workshop who so far haven't refused to do anything. Um, so it's like goes to their really small sampling team uh, and they try and make a shoe out of it. Um so far we're about six or seven episodes in now and so far they haven't failed um there's a handful of materials that i've filmed the introductions to that i that i am yet to see the end result and are currently in production that i am very doubtful (laughs) that will become a shoe so i'm really interested to see how they get on with those um but yeah, it's it's great. It's just like it's it's partly a test for the the craftspeople in the workshop, just you know, see how that what they can do. Uh, partly to see what materials can be used up and reused 
and then partly just a bit of fun. Mm. And how do your Peppa Pig shoes uh, wear? I mean, I haven't seen them on your Instagram yet. Uh, so I haven't put them on my Instagram uh, because they're not in my size. So uh, it's it's they've only made a couple of the sample pairs in my size that I've been able to try on, notably the IKEA Fractor bags. They were great. Um, did you request the Peppa Pigs not be made in your size? I did. I specifically said, don't get them anywhere near my feet. Uh, but <laughs> she's it's got her little flailing arm that's still stuck on there. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're, they're horrific. They're horrible. They shouldn't exist. But but, the, but this using up of, of things... Is that something that they would continue to do? Is it? Is there a? Are they seeking new uh, materials to use? So it's. I think this is the this is the the idea here is that some of these shoes will make it to production. Um, that would be ideal uh, if we can find a way to use up. As I said, a lot of the episodes are waste materials, either offcuts from production themselves or things that they found elsewhere. Uh, like there was one that was an old. Uh, bell staff jacket that turned out to be a horrific fake um so yeah, still made that one still made some shoes out of it uh but you know it's like it is just that idea of of will it shoe is is are these materials suitable materials that wouldn't normally be seen as suitable for such an endeavor can they be repurposed and turned into something useful um which is a really sort of integral part of what i do elsewhere you know, like repurposed materials are a lovely thing to see. And also a clever way to make uh, advertising films. Yeah. It's re- reaching an audience that you might not otherwise have reached. Absolutely. And I think like, you know, it's, it's very obviously there as an advertisement for their product and their services. Um, and if you can, if we can find like-minded people who are interested in those kind of shoes, um, made out of those kind of materials then it is just bringing them to a new audience and if we can get people to buy a pair of goral trainers instead of two or three pairs of new balance or adidas then win-win yeah so i'll be sending all the Peppa pig fans your way (laughs) there is a disclaimer on that video not to show it to children so so um other small companies that you have been uh I almost said meddling with, but that sounds entirely wrong. Um, interacting with recently. Hmm. Uh, yeah, sorry. So, um, you know, I do, uh, obviously I, I hate the word influencing. Um, I talk about this a lot on Instagram, but I do share brands and products, um, who I believe really genuinely believe are doing things right. Uh, typically I do this in exchange for some photography, um, as an avid photographer. Uh, and you know, it's kind of like, I love photographing clothes and I love photographing good clothes. I'm currently wearing my Ella Griffey shirt, who was a recent guest on your podcast. Um, shame, shamefully, I don't have one myself. It's honestly, it's incredible. Uh, it's my favorite shirt. Um, I wear it so much all the time it goes with everything these little buttons are just i mean obviously she told you about them the 3d printed cornish fishing net filament buttons just love it i love i love it if like a button has a story like that should be the norm for me 
just an interjection here. Mm. Do you find that as you've become more interested in clothes and have been picking up more clothes with potential stories, that you have become more boring to the people around you? Yeah. Um, people are they hesitant to comment on what you're wearing? <laughs> no, uh, I actually I actually find I get a lot more comments on what I'm wearing. Um, you know, like I'd I'd love to pretend that I've had my personal style nailed for the last ten years, but that that's not true. It it, it fluctuates. It always moves around. But I think this last year and a half has been I've never been more comfortable in what I wear, and I've never been prouder of what I wear. Uh, and it, but you know, like people, people still pass nice comments. Um, I tend not to bore them too much with the story. I'll give them the little details, and then if they want more information, I'll, I'll provide it. You have a little QR code hanging off your garments. So <laughs> just scan me for more details. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> I find people don't sort of really ask me about stuff because um, it'll be sort of like, well. Let me tell you about this. Yeah, uh, I, I can see that. Um, I don't think I'm there yet. I'm sure I bore some people, um, especially after a, a few glasses of wine at parties and weddings, and you can just hear me shouting from the corner about clothes. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very wrong. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Do you, does, your, uh, does your partner share your interest? Yeah, um, she does absolutely. She's uh, she loves small independent makers as well. Uh, she's a bit more into the the vintage side of it than I am. Um, she's very good at it. She's got some incredible vintage clothes, and she seems to find them so easily. And it really annoys me because I don't. Um, but you know, so she yeah, she's very much into it at the same same level I am. Why do you think it is that you don't find much vintage that suits you? I'm not I'm not really a rifler. I'm not I'm not one to sort of hunt through rails. Um which means the other option when it comes to vintage is then the the heavily curated specific eras of vintage which is then extremely expensive which negates mm. the whole point of vintage. Um I also think and I think we might have discussed this before, that I just think a lot of the bulk of what is sold under the term vintage is absolute trash. Like, there's so much 90s and noughties fast fashion in vintage shops now. Even stuff from last year. Yeah. Oh, even stuff with new tags still on. Hmm. Like, it is... It's And it's not... That's not what I want to wear. So, you know, even if it is vintage, the bulk of it's polyester, which I avoid. Um, it, it's just like, I just struggle with vintage on so many levels. Um, that's not to say I don't have vintage pieces. I have some really fun vintage pieces. I've got like a, an old vintage Nigel Cabon linen shirt, which is just one of my favorite things I've got. Um, but it's like, it's very specific niche pieces for me, I think. I wonder how vintage that actually is. Uh, I think it's about 20 years Vin old. But Vintage and secondhand have become almost synonymous now. Yeah. And yeah. So, but I agree. Vintage is tricky. Uh, and I, I love the idea of vintage. And I see lots of great vintage stuff. But when I go and have a look at it in the sort of vintage emporiums, 
it's hard to find anything that, uh, as you say, it has to be a bit of a bargain as well. There has to be some lure in it. Yeah, and then I think you're into this other thing with vintage where a lot of people will buy it because, oh, it's vintage and it's cheap, therefore I might as well buy it. And then you're just back into the realm of buying stuff you don't need for the sake of buying it. Yeah, we had this whole Barney this weekend um, with the Norwegian Salvation Army, who are the biggest uh, charity clothes seller in the country. And they're such an institution that they have these collecting stations all over the place and people are just dumping so much stuff to them. They get, I mean, from a population of about 6 million, they're getting 30 tonnes a day. And people have this idea that, all this stuff is going out into the shops. The money that is being uh, paid for it then to rebuy it is going to uh, good causes. But then it sort of turns out that 90% of it is just put in trailers and sent off to Eastern Europe. So it's sold for pennies on the pound as bulk. Mm -hmm. And it's the whole clothing operation has basically just become a business. Oh. So it's not really feeding back into society as much as you'd think no no um but i think the bulk of ours goes out to uh to ghana um there was a horrible film recently i watched uh, about it. that yeah uh it, it and it is you know like you say it's bought by the bundle um and it goes to this market in ghana where they're buying clothes by the bundle and they're buying it based on that's from the uk and it's men's shirts or and, and when i say bundle i'm talking like it's yeah, huge so you, you have to climb on top of them basically um and they pay they can pay a lot of money for these bundles and then they open it up and if you saw the same film i'm i saw this guy's going through it and he's literally just pulling dirty torn clothes that are worth nothing to them and chucking them to one side and it all goes to landfill and they mm. they find a very small percentage that they then sell um hoping to make a profit on the bundle they've bought um but you can't see what's in the bundle before you buy it you just buy based on limited information and the landfill operation there is it's it's apocalyptic when you see it mm. do you think it would help people to actually see films like that yeah i think yeah education and knowing what happens is the is fundamental to making like to to facilitating change you know like you say i think most people just don't realize no one's donating something to a charity shop with the with the idea that oh i don't care where it goes it's like I, well maybe some people are i think some people see a charity shop as a a less guilty way of getting rid of things um it's like a, a bin that pats you on the back uh but it's just the it is that idea that people need to understand how things work behind the I scenes. I think that's very much the case here in Norway because I think people have seen this as dropping their bags in these containers. That is your license to go out and buy some new stuff. I mean, many shops here now have these containers when you enter the shop. So you can sort of dump three pairs of jeans and go and buy a new pair. And I think once you realise that, hang on, this isn't how it's working. I mean, I tell people not to donate to these charities. If you want your clothes to have a, a second life, a second chance, give them to someone who will use them. Mm. 
it's what we used to do when with kids' clothes. Kids grew out of them, you'd give them to their siblings, then you'd give them to the neighbour, and they'd sort of travel around until they were completely worn out, and then you could bin them, or use them for rags, or whatever. But ending up on a landfill in Ghana doesn't really sort of... Uh, it's not working for anyone. No. no. Other than the fast fashion companies, I suppose, who are happy to sell you a new wardrobe full. Yeah, that, and that's it. You've got to look at every step of the process and say, well, who's benefiting from this? Because it's not the traders at Cantamanto Market. It's not you. It's not the workers on the shop floor. It's not the garment workers. No one's benefiting from that weird secondhand market. What do you say if someone says to you, well, we have to support fast fashion. Otherwise, how are the workers in Bangladesh going to be paid? I think it's kind of like... It's the, it's looking at it at completely the wrong angle. Uh, I think a one percent. What's the? Oh, there is a, there's a figure again. I don't want to quote it wrong, but it's something like a one percent increase of the retail price of a t-shirt would equal a living wage for the garment workers. And the issue here isn't that. The issue here isn't that if we buy less clothes that they're going to be out of a job. The issue is that they need to be paid more to make less clothes because they're, like a lot of these companies work on a per item basis. So they're encouraged to make as many clothes as possible to earn money. Um, in fact, I think it's only just become illegal to do that in California. I think last week there was a bill passed. I think it was, yeah. Um, about not being not uh, garment workers can no longer be paid per item it has to be the minimum hourly wage and it's like you know this is 2021 in america this like we're not talking about bangladesh here um but you know like it, it's not it's not your responsibility to keep garment workers in a job that is the responsibility of the corporations to pay them fairly for their work and it's like if if 1% increase to us is what it takes to pay garment workers a fair wage, then imagine what some CEO would have to lose out on in order to for that to happen for his workers. It's like they earn billions and billions at the top of these fast fashion companies, and they, they wouldn't notice that few less quid that went to like a minimum wage, a, a living wage. I was at the cinema the other day and saw the latest Bond movie and I was sitting there watching this uh, super criminal going, yakking on about, oh, how he's going to destroy the planet, blah, blah, blah. Really, really boring guy. And I'm thinking, it's 2021. We know what the supervillains now are. They're building spacecraft. They're exploiting workers. Those are the guys Bond should be going after. Oh, God, I'd love to, I'd love to see James Bond infiltrate Boohoo. Um, <laughs> Amazon or <laughs> Zara. <laughs> the thing is, Bezos looks like a Bond villain. Um, so it'd work. Well, I mean, I mean, once you start talking about building rockets off the profits of your minions, I mean, clearly, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're into. But you know, this was the only way they could they could have villains in movies was to make them billionaires. And obnoxiously rich. I mean, I know it's just a plot device to make sure that they can fit as many fun gadgets and spaceships in the film as they want. But it's like, you know, you look at a villain in a Bond film, they're always on the uh, 
on the wealthier side. So let's talk about clothes. I think this is something here is like, let's not, we talk about buying less. We talk about looking after things and mending and stuff, but you know, like we, we should still be enjoying clothes. And I think enjoying clothes is something we've lost sight of. Like, you know, it's this old adage of like, do you really, really love your clothes? And actually, can you love an animal object? Or are we just crazy people? Is this you wanting to talk about romance clothing again? <laughs> I'm up for it. <laughs> well, actually, you know what? It was you You asked Ella this question um, when, you, when I would listen to the podcast recently about, did you ask her as a maker how you talk about loving clothes, but as a maker, how do you make something that people love? That's part of what I'm after this season because we talk about, I mean, part of, let me just get this right in my mind. You buy better, buy less. is just one thing. Really, we're talking about using what you have. And for a long time, I saw this little infographic a while back which was um, trying to sell the idea of buying British instead of buying something fast fashion, whereby they were comparing that you could buy 20 fast fashion coats over 20 years, one a year, or you could pay more and buy one made in Britain coat and wear it every day for 20 years. And I was looking at that infographic and thinking, the same jacket every day for 20 years? I'd really have to love that jacket. And it's not enough that it's just made in England. It would have to be something incredibly special. I don't think it could possibly exist. No. But it, but it brings you around to this idea of, well, cherished clothes, clothes that you really like so much that you want to wear them. And that's what I was asking Ella, as how as a maker can she try to sort of influence or contribute to that? I mean, I can't, I can't speak for Ella or other makers but from my perspective i think if makers actually focused on making things that they like and finding like-minded people to wear them which i'm sure ella does she's not designing shirts that she wouldn't wear herself it's i think it's a much more honest way of doing business it's a much more honest way of designing um and it is the complete opposite of fast fashion companies who are designing for trends and designing for sales. Um, there's no longevity in that. Whereas there is longevity in someone who's making something that they are genuinely proud of and genuinely happy to put out into the world and not coming up with new designs every week. And I think they often sort of tend to overlook that if you're making say 25 shirts, which you love and are really great, you actually only need 25 customers. Yeah. You don't need the whole world to be your audience. Yeah. I, that's a really, really good point. It is, it's, you know, a limited customer base is not a negative thing when it comes to being a small, nimble maker. All right. So what would your romance clothing be? Linen. Just any linen? Any linen. I'm, I love it. I just think it's just the best fabric. Um, Not a long, flowing, orange linen robe oh, with a just, hood. Yeah, I just <laughs> I just get gushy over linen. Um, I think, you know, I talk about story and clothing, and I think linen just has one of those great 
Like you can just, I could talk about it for ages. You know, it's such a great plant. You can use every part of it. It doesn't need any, doesn't need a lot of water. doesn't really need pesticides like cotton does. It makes a wonderful fiber. It's, you know, it's difficult to spin into a fiber. Um, there's a lot of projects going on at the minute trying to sort of make it commercially viable to spin, which it's not been done in this country for, I don't know how long. Um, but you know, it's like the only reason it's expensive is because it's an intensive process of spinning it into a fiber. As far as a plant goes and growing it, it's. I actually saw bundles of the linen plant or the flax plant mm -hmm. twice this summer. One was at our local Viking um, museum display thing. They had a whole bundle there because it was what Vikings used when they made their stuff. And the other was in the Norwegian Heritage Museum in Oslo, where they also had sort of ancient farmsteads, bundles of flax there. So what disturbed me a little bit, though, was when linen sort of became a thing a few years ago, it suddenly ramped up so quickly. It was as if there was sort of huge, huge stocks of linen lying around. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how many, much stock is lying around, but, you know, it's it's not hard to find some dead stock material these days. And I'm sure there'll have been rolls and rolls of linen that were ready to go into production before polyester completely took over. Um Obviously, I'm just completely hypothesizing here. This is this is a potential thing that could have happened. I don't know this for a fact. The, the sudden availability of linen bothered me a lot less than the sudden massive availability of organic cotton, though, mm. which made me really question, is all this cotton organic? Yeah, or I don't know what is the... Uh, I don't know what the regulations are and how much organic cotton it has to be. Um included in the blend if it's a blend of organic and non-organic uh i've seen i've seen things recently which are made with organic cotton and it's a very small part of the blend of fabric and it's like it's just straight up greenwashing um but also organic cotton is better than cotton like it, it is on on paper it is better than cotton um, so you have to sort of celebrate people who are using it as the alternative um, if it's the only sort of realistic thing for that. You know, it's like no one really wants linen jeans yet. I'd love to see that. So, you know, cotton for, cotton is what jeans are made from and jeans aren't going anywhere. Are you making excuses for H&M now, Sam? <laughs> Not on my deathbed. Um <laughs> No, I think, I mean, H&M, God, they're the fucking worst. Uh, they're just, their greenwashing is just, you know what, they, they would be, they would be the perfect example of greenwashing. If you were trying to teach someone about greenwashing, you just have to look at H&M. You have to look at the way they describe things, the way they bracket things on the website, the language they use, um, like in their conscious collection. And then it says by 2025 or whatever, we are planning to use sustainable materials. And it's like, that's such a non sentence means absolutely nothing other than that. You've managed to shoehorn the word sustainable in there. Um, so you show up in, in a search engine when people type in sustainable clothes and it's, you know, like that, this is a great quote I saw the other day from, 
I believe it was Heidi at the Rogue Essentials, who's another brilliant um, sort of sustainability Instagrammer, that uh, if you search sustainable clothing on Google, which a lot of people, it's the first place they'd go if they're looking to sort of make that change and improve their um, wardrobe in that sense, the first things that come up are the big fast fashion brands that have spent the most on search engine optimization with the word sustainable in it. And it's like, Mm. and more, more than that, the first options that come up are more clothes to buy. No articles are getting to the top of that about like, Hey, you're looking for sustainable clothing. You've already got it. It's in your wardrobe. It's kind of logical, isn't it? Because you can buy a pair of sustainable trousers but to be more sustainable, you'll just buy 10 pairs. Sadly, that is how I think how some people seem to think is like the more sustainable clothing I buy, the more sustainable I am. Um, and that's just not true. You know, like people who still wear, like, God, Holly, my uh, my partner, she's got fast fashion items that are 15 years old and then some. Um, so, you know, if you care for your clothes it doesn't matter where you buy them from it's like if you look after them they'll last you well i mean fast fashion companies aren't infallible occasionally they do make a terrible mistake and make a pair of trousers that will last 10 15 years i mean they regret it and i'm sure people are fired but But do you not do you not also not feel that 10 or 15 years ago they were more likely to make something that would actually last a bit longer than they are now I know that when I was a teenager, I bought one pair of jeans a year. And I imagine they were pretty scrappy at the end of that year, or maybe even two years, but that was sort of how much I bought. And I'm sure, well, I see from the teenager we have living in the house now, if she buys a pair of trousers at H&M, they don't last very long. And of course they are sort of pre-distressed as well which doesn't exactly help matters gone before they even start there we go yeah um but this uh, this is this is a whole thing pre-distressed genes it's the the chemical treatments and the nonsense that goes on to make a pair of jeans look like an old pair of jeans is it's like this it's it's its own little environmental catastrophe i think it's well, I'd like to think it has become less so than it used to be not many years ago, because then there were horrific video clips showing guys spraying acid on jeans or whatever. And mm-hmm. it was really bad. I mean, what bugs me more about jeans now is the amount of elastane in them to make them springy. Yeah. I don't, don't know if you saw the photo of what a pair of jeans looks like after it's been biodegraded for a few years. Yeah basically that skeleton of plastic still yeah it is it is uh you know but it's like i under there's also i understand there's a place for stretchy jeans um you know there are people like size inclusivity is still a massive thing with slow fashion small brands often struggle to offer enough sizing to cater to everyone um but it's not it's not an excuse they should like you know, size inclusivity is a great thing. And some people, their only option is to shop fast fashion to get clothes that fit. That is a valid point because, say, vintage secondhand, you are kind of 
limited to what is available there. And I know for my own part that it's really hard to find vintage stuff that even fits. I mean, I am not a I'm I'm not a particularly big guy. I think I'm a forty two inch chest, forty one inch chest, uh, thirty six inch waist, and you know, fairly standard measurements. Um, I can never find vintage that fits. It's all tiny. Yeah, it's all people were so smaller small. before, but I think also a lot of the sort of more normal size stuff gets used up. Mm. But what I, I mean, this is off on a tangent again and a bit of a diversion all from right. fast fashion. Tangents. I'd great. like to find out where the really old vintage stuff is. I mean, there must be so many house clearings now from where stuff which is really old, say World War Two, mm. which isn't really that old now compared to really old, but. Where is it all? Landfill. Not in your shed? Yeah, no, no not in my <laughs> shed. I, th- I don't know. I think, you know, th- there's people that find it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of 50s furniture, and that can be like gold dust at the minute because all of a sudden everyone's figured out that it's worth something to people. So then it becomes very hard to find, very expensive, and it's a little cycle that just runs away with itself. Um you know, that kind of happens with clothes as well. World War Two, like post-war clothing. It, it is just this sort of people know what it's worth to collectors or to someone else. Um, God, I watched an interview with Caborn. What did he say? He said it's, he spends about 50 grand a year on vintage. Um, and I'm sure that that's a lot of vintage, but I'm sure he's also spending a lot of money on very specific niche items for his collection and inspiration. Um, but, you know, like, it, it, I think the point is, is that that sort of vintage is now very expensive until you find a warehouse somewhere that has thousands and thousands of un, unused military apparel that can then enter the market. And then, you know, people still want a lot of money for it. I've heard tell of stuff like Ventile uh, RAF Parkers, which, say, 30 years ago you got for 20 quid and are now worth £1,000 or whatever. But I think uh, I think you're right about Caborn. I mean, he does have a massive, massive uh, collection, but the sort of stuff he's after now is uh, the expensive, weird stuff. <laughs> um, clothes collecting. Hmm. Pro or not Pro. Uh, ooh, I don't know. Depends on the context. I'm sure I could find pros and cons for a few different contexts. I think if you're collecting clothes for the sake of growing a wardrobe of stuff you're not going to wear, then hell no. Um, if you're trying to preserve a particular era of vintage clothing or build a little personal museums with, then go for it. Sounds great. I suppose it's whether you see them as things to wear or like an alternative to vinyl records. Or whatever gives you pleasure. I mean, yeah. people collect anything. Oh yeah, but, yeah. I, I don't know. Collect. I'm. I'm sure we could get if, a very deep psychological study on why people collect things. But if your collection is sort of this week's shine um, dump, then uh, obviously against that. I think the the idea of collecting is preserving, isn't it? I think there's a there's a there's a huge element of preservation and building something that has a a bit of a story behind it. Like, which you you just you know you're not going to get if you collect fast fashion doesn't exist 
Um, I'm sure there's iconic pieces of fast fashion that happened that some people would pay a lot of money for or want, but then it's made in such volumes that is it hard to find? I mean, they have tried to make stuff like that. Um, when H&M, say, do a collaboration with Balenciaga, Commodore Gosson, all these places, where really what they're doing is making their cheap version of some famous designer stuff mm -hmm. and trying to make it into something that will make them seem shinier and cooler than they are, I suppose. The worst one with that was H&M and Good News. I uh, don't know if you're familiar with Good News, but they're a uh, no? like a shoe brand um, that kind of quite a young company, but they they were really doing great stuff with sustainable materials in shoe manufacture and ethical production. Um, and then you know along came H and M with the uh, the collaboration carrot dangling in front of them, um, and there was this big H and M and Good News collaboration, and everything from all the fans of good news and anyone who knew about them and anyone who cared about business being done that way just turns around and says, what the hell are you doing? Like, why are you partnering with one of the worst perpetrators of everything you stand against? And obviously it's for money. Um, I saw influencers who were gifted the shoes and obviously paid a lot of money to post about them. And people are jumping in on there saying, why are you working for, H&M, like good news is a good fit, but like, you shouldn't be working for H&M. That doesn't work for you. And their only response was, oh, well, you need to ask good news about where they're made and stuff. And it's like, it was uh, just it was just one of those key moments of collaboration for me where it just kind of went wrong. Because obviously things weren't made like good news would usually make them. They, I think they were about both. half the price of what good news would normally charge for a shoe as well which is the, you know like who's taking that hit who's taking that cut i can guarantee it's not the ceos of h&m what a odd thing to do yeah there must have been some uh, financial reward in it oh, of course or maybe they were hoping to reach out to h&m's customer base i think that's the thing it's like you know the team at good news could could have maybe said and this is again all speculation they could have said oh here's an opportunity to change people's minds reach a new customer base like have a big platform to get the good news out there. But it just wasn't done right. It just shouldn't have happened to me. Like you don't you don't increase people's sustainability efforts by partnering with a huge unsustainable fast fashion corporation. Clearly a very cynical world. That's the one I live and, in. Uh, <laughs> Do you find you get very angry about all this stuff? Does it sort of... <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I think that's part of the reason, as I said at the start of the pod, that I've tried to have a bit more fun with it recently because um, I just found myself getting so stressed, depressed and angry about the state of it. Um, and actually having fun is a really nice way to combat that and also still fight the good fight. Um, the whole social media thing is in my experience, pretty draining, time-consuming, all-consuming. Mm. I mean, God, when it went down this week, I think we had a, an evening of no Instagram. Uh, I got so much done. I got two videos. You weren't con I got two you videos were constantly editing. checking. Oh, of course I was. <laughs> of 
course I was constantly checking, but I got I got like two videos edited um in the that I'd been putting off for a while. Uh you're right, Instagram is draining. Um and we keep using it like it's I think there's a wonderful community on there. You meet some great people, you get to have great conversations about clothing and sustainability with a lot of people, but it is so draining at the best of times. Could you imagine a world where you actually said goodbye to it? I've considered it. I've like, I often think to myself, like, what, what, what would I lose if I stopped being on Instagram tomorrow? Um, one of my friends does a every year. She deletes the app from her phone for the whole of January, um, just for like a bit of a reset. Uh, and I love that idea. So I think like you can get so caught up in the algorithms and what your like oh your content strategy is and then and then it all boils into this mind thought of well why have I got a content strategy what on earth am I trying to prove like what am I achieving what do I what do I get out of it what do other people get out of me doing this because you know Instagram is the pretty really like the only platform out there that expects people to make it content for free. I find it has helped me to, uh, to move away from a strategy where I feel I have to put something out every day where I have to do it mm -hmm. to just putting stuff out when I actually have a good idea or feel like it. Yeah. Um, I, I've taken that approach as well. And you know what? It kind of hurts my reach. It hurts my engagement, but I just don't care. Like at the end of the day, I, I kind of just, you know, you, you think, Oh, like what about my engagement rates They they they'll drop if I don't keep posting, but then actually, you know what? It's like, if it hits the right people and if it finds the right person, then why does that matter? Yeah, I, I never look at engagement rates or reach or I just don't pay any mind to it at all. I, I'll reply to comments. But apart from that, I don't bother. No. And you know what? Uh, like, I think that's it's, it's a much healthier way to use it. Um, the only people I really see growing massively on Instagram are people who talk about growing massively on Instagram. And they may well be buying followers on instagram <laughs> i had i had somebody try and sell me followers yesterday it still goes on it happens almost daily Bonk it's, it's bonkers. Uh, but i take it you have looked at what uh, instagram say himself about how you should succeed on instagram with regards yeah. to posting rates and what sort of content you should be posting all this could you imagine a life where you were following it's, a, it's a full-time job they're asking you to put a full-time job into their app to earn them money on their advertising and it's like, like, yes, I earn a little bit of money through Instagram. Sometimes I find clients for photography through Instagram. Sometimes like, you know, that it has benefit to me, but actually, you know, putting the effort into reels and making these videos and making sock puppets for these videos. It's not like Instagram go, oh, great job hit. Like, thanks for that. You've just managed to sell a load of advertising space to your few thousand followers. It's like it's such a weird exchange of energy between you and that app. Oh, I, I go from day to day wanting to just jack it all in. But then after all these years, I've got such a huge investment in the blog and the podcast and the Instagram and That's all this, the whole, whole little empire. 
Yeah. Well, I, you know, I wasn't content with one Instagram and one YouTube channel, so I've started another one as well. You know, always have to have a new hobby on the go. So what's the what's the focus there? Uh, it's more like outdoorsy stuff. Um, Holly and I are kind of avid hills people. Uh, love going and getting out in the tent. Um, I've got. I just I just realised that I had like thousands and thousands of photos of camping trips and hikes that were, for the most part, irrelevant to my Instagram feed. And it's like I don't want to start posting stuff that isn't about slow fashion and clothing because then it just puts people off who aren't there for that so i just thought you know what let's let's just start something else so uh yeah we've got that little account together now just like i say outdoorsy bits still has a a really strong theme of uh sustainability and slowness around it if you will do you find a, a weekend on the moors in a tent creating content brings you closer together Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, uh, Holly works in healthcare. So she's a nine to five sort of person. I'm self-employed. I run a little bar. I am not a nine to five person. I am a work very, very little person to make time for myself. Um, so getting out is kind of like an ideal way to spend time together for me. I did sneak a little uh, a little hook in there in my previous statement, the creating content bit. Do you find you can actually enjoy going camping if you have this hanging over you that, oh, I must create some content? There's, uh, it, it kind of flicks in and out. Um, some moments are, oh God, I should be filming this or I should, I should be taking some photos. And then other parts, I just couldn't care less about filming and taking photos and it's just there in that. Um, but I think... If anyone else is a photographer or a keen photographer, whether professional or not, knows that when you're out, you have a camera with you and you just take photos of stuff and it's what you do. Sometimes I'll stop and stop to take photos of things, look up and realize Holly's long in the distance um, because she won't wait for me. But other times she wants to take photos as well. So it's like, I don't know. I think that I don't think it has a, a negative impact on being outdoors. And it's not like we just go outdoors to create the content and then get back in the car and go home. It's kind of, I th- feel like it's a very nice, like authentic sort of content that comes out of being outside. I think that's good. As long as you don't feel a pressure to uh, to create and that, that becomes the whole thing. Because I often find that I'll be out doing some stuff and, uh, oh, it's scenic, there's some stuff to see. And uh, I'll be reminded that, oh, you should, you should take some photos of this for your story and whatnot. And I'm like, oh, okay then. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like we, we recently drove all around Northumberland for four days. Um, and I made a little video of it that's on YouTube, but some of my favorite bits of that trip are nowhere to be seen in the video or photos because I was just immersed in it and just enjoying it. But they're only on your OnlyFans page. <laughs> Not yet. That's next. That's next in the empire <laughs> of online content. All right. Okay, Sam. I see we've been talking for a good long while now. Any um, cool stuff you'd like to mention in closing? Any uh, cool mad ideas? Uh, Any angry rants? No, uh, I've no angry rants to do at the moment. Uh, I think. 
if people are listening to this and are kind of starting to question the impact of their shopping and wardrobe, then, you know, just, just slow down. Don't, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to like, definitely don't get rid of your wardrobe and buy a new sustainable one. Cause that's the worst thing you could do. Um, follow me on Instagram. Like got to get that little plug in there. Uh, you can find, I'm sure Nick can link that in the, podcast description or something along those lines i'll, I'll link your only fans in the show notes yep <laughs> <laughs> have you got anything cool you want to finish with nick uh you know no one ever asks me that but uh not really i, I got my little uh thing in about the about the norwegian salvation army and their good clothes collection scam yeah uh, which has really been sort of uh keeping my blood boiling the last few days yeah uh, but i like you i do try to uh, i do try to be more mellow and not get so worked up about things because i do notice as i get older that i do get more worked up and it is not good mm. i think i don't think instagram helps i think a lot of people are worked up on there um you know even even in my little world people some people don't like what i'm saying and it's a bit bit odd but there you go it's sort of a bit of a virtuousness show competition because i'll see someone saying this and this and i'll think hang on i've got better arguments than that and then i'll catch myself with a oh no i don't re- i really don't want to go into that yeah <laughs> yeah i i i don't mind a bit of online arguing now and then uh sometimes i'm in the mood for it but I do typically try and avoid it. I think for the sanity of your existence, that is the best strategy. Okay. Thanks a lot then, Sam. No worries. Thank uh, you. Until next time. Bye-bye. Wave was not heard, Sam. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I I waved. Bye, everyone. for this week's episode of Comology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Thanks to Sam Binstead for being my guest this week. You can find Sam on Instagram as Sam Binstead. You'll also find a link there to his uh, YouTube channel and book recommendations. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, send an email to uh, welldresseddad at gmail.com. You can find my blog at welldresseddad.com and predictably, if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's well-dressed dad if you have any suggestions to guests if you'd like to support the podcast do get in touch if you'd like to be really helpful drop me a review or rating or both on apple podcast it's really hard to um to promote the pod to get it out there so uh, word of mouth and uh, reviews are excellent if you like it why not tell a friend or two or even a shout out on instagram so until next week, thanks a lot and uh, bye bye.